0: We do have the ability to change the world. In
1: my world, I've never anticipated We're easy. also trying to change paradigm. We're more than just a collection of hammers and so It on.
0: is such an exciting opportunity to really
1: change brains. We always lose touch with common things that everyone uses and where they come from.
0: Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice
1: Baynard. And law school wasn't easy, you know, and and, and compliance hasn't been easy. So, I mean, in in my world, um, I've never anticipated easy.
0: That's Paul Flanagan assistant professor of law at Drexel University's Thomas R. Klein School of Law, and one of the first compliance specialists in the country. He's held compliance and privacy-related positions around the country and has published widely on these topics. He's also, as I find out, a pretty great tennis player. Yeah, I mean, at any time, I could just insert a Paul Flanagan, welcome to the 10,000 hours, but I'm not going to start there. We are going to start with competitive Tennis, because like I'm that. I'm super excited. So, where'd you grow up in the U.S.?
1: I, I was born here in Philadelphia, but then my dad, who's a physician, moved me because he had a, um, a kind of a streak in him that he wanted to see the country. Yeah, which isn't your typical uh, physician. Uh, he moved us to Arizona.
0: Wow. That's a long way. It's
1: a long way. I I moved all the way across the country to a little town called Prescott, Arizona, which is about, there was about 16,000 people there.
0: Did he move there because he was then going to be the one physician in Prescott?
1: No. I think he went there because he had wanderlust. He became a doctor so he could call the shots and basically go where he wanted to go. It wasn't that he wanted to start a practice and then get it big. He wanted to be able to see the world. And, uh, you know, as a physician, I think he had the opportunity to do that. And I think my dad's wanderlust has always k- kind of followed me along because I've, I've, I think I got the same wanderlust.
0: So let's do tennis. I would love to. When did you get into tennis? When did you first pick up a racket?
1: Oh, that's a really, um, this is a good question. I, I was uh, six years old. Yeah. And my brother was a tennis player and my sister was a tennis player and I'm very competitive, I've always right. been competitive, um, mostly competitive because they were older than me and as, as a baby, you're always competitive with your brother Absolutely. and sister and they were they, they were always doing things and I was always envious that they were out doing stuff and so they were out playing tennis and I'll never forget, there was this store called Yellow Front, um, they bought me a, a, a wooden tennis racket and from there, I uh, I would just play against my sister who was much better than me, she's only two years older but she used to beat the crap out of me <laughs> and, and, and my competition with her, um, right. was I just wanted to beat her, uh, no matter what. She's so, placing
0: balls. Oh my God. She's hitting me too. The court. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, she's well, hitting yeah, right at you.
1: Yeah. When, when the, when the arguments would go.
0: What was the day that you beat your sister?
1: Oh God, that was a wonderful day. I it, uh, <laughs> um, You know, it's interesting. I so I you know I, I could say this on radio, but uh, I went through puberty. Yeah. And, and, oh, you and got bigger. I got a little bigger, stronger and faster. Um, I'm, I'm a guy, so I, I actually caught her, and um, I she didn't know it was coming. And she didn't know it was coming, and I just started getting a little better. My serve was a little stronger. My forehand was a little bit stronger, and I eventually caught her, and I think I beat her six four. And um, she handled it well.
0: And that was the last day she played you. <laughs>
1: Things changed. Yeah, after that, they did, did. you hit her with the ball? Yeah, I did actually. Of did. I did. I, I chased her. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, when we were fourteen and sixteen, and, I mean, that's. But there comes a point when you hit puberty where you realize that you're bigger than your sister, and you stop.
0: So, at your height, how good were you?
1: Um, I got pretty good. I got what nationally was your ranked.
0: State and national ranking. Let's yeah, you're going to ask me that. Let's do it. <laughs> I was number
1: uh, two in Arizona. Uh, number 17th in the Southwest and 122nd in the country.
0: I love that. I just, I'd get it on a plaque. Yeah. And, just yeah. and thank you for
1: asking that because I don't think I've been asked that question in, in 20 years.
0: Which, what was your first undergrad? Where'd
1: you go? I went to Catholic University in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was an amazing experience. Uh, again, man, I grew up Did in they a small have a town.
0: Team. Did you join?
1: Um, so, I was on track to go to a Division One school. Um, I was on track to probably you know, be a, a scholar a tennis player playing on a tennis scholarship. And you know, the goal of all tennis players is to go to Stanford. That's where John McEnroe That's went. So but we moved to the East Coast when I was 16 and a half. Yeah. And then uh, you're moving across country. I was going to a public school, and I ended up going to a private school. I went to Malvern Prep. In Malvern prep, everybody wore ties. I actually tucked my tie in. I didn't know how to wear a tie because in in Arizona, everybody is. There's no ties in Arizona. No, no, I never wore a jacket in my life. So I, um, you know, I even wore shorts to school occasionally. It was Arizona. So I, when I went out to Malvern prep, I I tucked my tie in and I was made fun of the the day number two. Um, I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but like the competitor in me said, I'm going to survive. I actually first six weeks, I ate lunch in the cafeteria. I mean, I mean, in the in the library because I I, I was just because you didn't know where the I didn't know anybody. Was. No, I didn't know anybody. didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. Some really sad stories. Yeah, this a, has
0: gotten very dark. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> really, it's
1: the beauty. The the, the the grit is that I yeah. that I pulled out. I made a lot of friends, but I, I um. But I, what happened is I dropped tennis. I came out and I dropped tennis, and um. Then they found. I think the only reason they accepted me is they found out my dad went to Georgetown and I played tennis, so they accepted me. Yeah. And um, we got him. We'll take it. So I played I played tennis and did very well there. But um, when you're on that competitive of, of a level, if you drop even six weeks, it's over. You can't stop. Just losing that edge enough was enough for me to say I don't I don't think I'm gonna um, do the division one thing. For me, you don't do all this not thinking you're going pro. Right. Right? I right. mean that's <laughs> what you're gonna do. I mean that's what you're gonna do. So I I, th- I mean from the time I was six I thought I'm going pro. That's it. I'm gonna go pro, I'm gonna go pro. And when we moved, I realized probably within six weeks that that wasn't going to happen but but then I transferred all that into let's go to school and so i picked a I picked a Division three school on purpose so that I would not be um, tempted tempted perfect word because I think if I went to division one i'd walk on absolutely um, if i went right. to I went to Division three, I would think I'm too good for the division three and I would just ignore him.
0: This was you making a conscious decision that I'm not going to go pro. And to do that, I'm not even going to tip myself yeah, with I, good players.
1: I was all in or all out. And I just, I went all out. I just said, why, why am I going to go? Torture myself.
0: Was there one moment of regret? Yeah, oh yeah.
1: Here's yeah. like every
0: day, right now.
1: <laughs> no, I think there was two years of regret. I think um you know the, the first girl I dated. I don't think when I was in co- in college didn't understand why I was moody. <laughs> She's
0: like, why are there so many in this room? You
1: know, just like a like all freshmen, we're all moody. We're going through life, but I was moody for another reason. Yeah. And that reason was I should be at Stanford or I should be playing tennis somewhere. And and, I, and really the first year was me just trying to figure out what this all meant. Because you have to realize, I mean, from the time I was six, I was preparing myself for this life that, you know, and so I think the next eight years was me dealing with that. And I needed another thing. Another thing. Another thing. When the law school popped in, I thought, now that one's out of my reach. Yeah. But I knew I had to do something. And so I put Did something- Did you
0: know you could do it by the time you took the LSATs?
1: No, no. I, I didn't know I could do it until second year of law school. <laughs> <laughs> You're
0: like, I actually got in law school yeah. and still didn't think No,
1: I'm I sitting was. in law school and, and I'm uh, like wondering what pay the pay. heck am I doing here? I'm competitive, but it, it, to me when I went to law school, I'm like, okay, I'm back in nationals tennis. Nobody here has a weakness. Everybody here- right. Everybody here studying harder than you. Everybody's taking this more seriously than you. And I'm going to have to go back to hitting 500 backhands and forehands a day um, just for me to compete, to thrive in there. And it, it took me two years to really get my bearings in law school.
0: Right. So you figure it out. But you finish law school and you still don't just go out and hang a shingle, right? You don't get a client.
1: When I graduated in law school, the, I mean, basically the first day I, I graduated, I got a job at a hospital. And then How
0: does that come about? Like how does a guy with a law degree get that hospital job?
1: Well I had such a chip on my shoulder about being a lawyer that I thought, well, you know, my wife's gonna be the lawyer and she she already had a job, so um you know I was gonna I, I was gonna do something in a hospital. Right.
0: You didn't know what, but I you had no idea. Something.
1: Yeah, but I I said I had to get a job. Did I, you
0: I, tell people you were a lawyer? Like No. <laughs>
1: oh that's great. No, like I didn't say like I have a degree. No, I was thrilled. I mean I always thought that if uh I kind of thought if I didn't make it, no matter what, if I graduated, I could always say I'm a, a lawyer, and then I could go down to like Mexico and fish, and be a, and be a bartender, and <laughs> and then nobody would be able to say anything because if anybody said, "Well, you're just a bartender," I'd be like, be like well, "No, actually, I'm a lawyer." Actually, I'm a lawyer, but you know, I'm I'm down here bartending, but right. I, I, to me, that was my fantasy to go down there. But uh, um, when I married my wife, who was top of her class, I'm like, "Oh God, I you know now I have to compete with her." Right, and. You know, marriage does that. You, you can't just go become a bartender down in, in Cabo. And, they, you know, wives don't like yeah, that. Yeah, no, there
0: are not, like not a lot of wives that go, you know, go to Cabo. Yeah, no, she
1: was, she was not going for that. And um, and she said, well, you have a master's in yeah. uh, hospital situation. You have a, a law degree. You're not going to just become a bartender. You're going to do something with that. So you
0: walk into a hospital and they go, we've got a closet for you.
1: I walked into a hospital and um, showed my degree. And I thought, I, I, I don't know if anyone's ever going to hire me. And there there was this job working for the chief medical officer yep. um, as a um, medical legal affairs um, it was I mean they were paying peanuts yeah but the good news on that was that um, Be-
0: but better than bartending.
1: better than bartending and and my wa- yeah, and yeah. my and my wife you know my wife's okay with with the fact that I got a job in a hospital I'm not, I'm not a practicing attorney but I'm actually working in a hospital and it was credentialing which is um, you know it was like I wouldn't say bottom of the barrel, but it was like an entry-level job. But the good news, and I didn't even know this because I had never really had a job before, um, was that I was working for the chief medical officer, which I now know is kind of a big deal. Did but you
0: even know what that was? No. Or no no, no idea. idea.
1: All I knew is this, I got a job.
0: was this guy. I, I, got came got a, home. I have a boss. Yeah,
1: I have a boss, and I show up, and... Um, they took me into the room, and it was the suite. This is the the yeah. neat story. Is that this? Suite, it was a big suite. It was a big glass doors. You walk in the glass doors, and straight ahead of you was the CEO's office, chief executive officer. Right. And to your right was the chief medical officer. And then you go back down this hallway, and um, they opened the door, and it was a closet. And they were able to put a desk in the closet, and my uh, my drawers couldn't even come out. The drawers would pull out just enough. For, you know, for you got six inches. Um, yeah. of, of stuff to put in there, but I, I was thrilled I had a job. Absolutely. The good news is that every day I walked in, I would walk by the CEO's office, he'd wave at me, I'd wave at him, and I, I arranged golf tournaments, I did whatever for the doctors because this is credentialing, but it was credentialing and gopher, Right. Um, right. and my wife kept saying, well, you're going to do end up doing something with your law degree, I know you will, um, mm-hmm. she was being funny and she was be being sarcastic at the same time. Um,
0: yeah, that's um, why I'm sort wanting yeah, to Yeah, she was, and I got it. <laughs> she was pushing
1: me a little bit. But um, I was just thrilled that I, I brought her my paycheck. She made fun of me because I used to stare at the paycheck at night. Um, did you? Yeah, what like I get it? Really? Yeah, because like, I never, I never had a paycheck. You're really. like, this is amazing. This is, I just stare at it. Like and, you go, yeah. you
0: do stuff, and then yeah, they, yeah. They, pay, they pay you. Yeah, you. yeah. And,
1: you know, after eight or nine hours, you're like, wow, I, I did, I did do something. You remember the first, payche- payche- yeah, the first yeah, paycheck? Yeah, yeah. So she laughs at me because I, I, was sitting, I was laying in bed, and I just was looking at this blue paycheck and looking at the taxes that came out and looking yeah. at everything. I didn't care. I just couldn't believe that someone gave me money, and I was thrilled to have the job.
0: When did they move you out of the closet?
1: So there there was a um there was a moment there where compliance broke and, and no one knew what this was and, and what year are we talking? This about? is like nineteen ninety six. Mm-hmm. Nineteen ninety five actually. Yeah. And the CEO, I kept walking by the CEO and we would chat and he, he started to like me and I liked him back. But he you know, he was kind of a rotund guy and I think he enjoyed me, because I think I was clueless. Then when you're clueless, you don't know you're supposed to be afraid of the CEO. Right,
0: because you don't even really know what he does.
1: There was a certain kind of cluelessness that allowed me to not think of him other than a human being. And right. that, that really helped. Well, and this is the story. So, and this is right out of The Graduate. Now, you said you didn't, do you remember The Graduate? I you do don't? remember the Okay, so this is straight out of The Graduate. So I, uh, he puts his arm around me, he goes, Paul, oh. one word. And I said, what? And, and he said, compliance. And... <laughs> And I said, what everybody else said for the next five years, what's compliance? Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, what about it? And, yeah. he go, and I, I think I said, what is that? He said, that's going to be the future. Um, you need to get into it. Um, I want you to put a presentation together, and um, we're going to start a new system. It's called Legion Health. It's a 10-hospital system. And um, I want you to give a presentation to this uh, newly formed board um, about being a, a compliance officer. And I said, okay. If I wasn't the first, uh, and I think I was, but if I wasn't the absolute first, I was one of the first chief compliance officers in the country, having no idea what it was.
0: So compliance has grown over over time. So So as technology has grown, as what um, hospitals and organizations have to be thinking about in the world, and as there's more and more regulation, you've had to kind of evolve the...
1: Yeah, so compliance... You know, when I got involved, I said there was very few of us in right. 1995, right. 96. And I was part very early on of the Compliance Officer Association. There was really about five or six of us at the right. time. And then it just it, it exploded.
0: It's a really small national it, meeting.
1: Yeah. It was like now there's 20,000.
0: So I think of uh, like something really recent. Like, um, so it turned out that Uber got hacked. Yeah. All of our personal Uber data. Yeah. Uh, it you know, got stolen. Then they paid the guys that hacked them to keep it quiet.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, Right, like,
0: yeah. To, to make a fix and also to keep it quiet. And when you hear that story, do you go, that's an industry without a compliance officer?
1: Yeah, that, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I I've been... So, so compliance grew, and then privacy got. You know, and privacy was always the ugly stepsister. Nobody wanted to deal with a, a privacy, and most compliance officers still don't like privacy. But privacy's gotten so big, um, with its own set of teeth, and um, that it's it's exploded. And 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 it's, it's a subset of compliance. I mean, everything's a subset of compliance, though, isn't it? Right. So what we're finding out and bring up the Uber story is this whole cyber world, uh, cybersecurity, and all the cyber issues. Doesn't it sound a little bit like the wild, wild west of compliance 20 years ago? It does. So, right. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to, for something a light bulb to go off in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, you know what they need? They, they really kind of need a framework, a structure. They need right. something. I know they do. They have the NIST standards and they all. But there seems to be, um, I feel like they're behind the eight ball all day long because yeah. the, the technology has grown so fast. You know, the Internet of Things and our smartphones are basically, uh, the more you read about hackers and cybersecurity and cyber world out there, and the more you you panic because yeah. you realize that Facebook and the Amazons of the world, um, big data, they said, is the new oil. And
0: so back in the 90s, early 2000s, it was easy to say, oh, as a doctor, you shouldn't take a bunch of private medical records, stick them in your bag and take them home to work on them. That's unsecure. That's a bad idea. You also shouldn't be sitting at the table pointing out to your relatives, like, look what this
1: guy so I mean, so the world's come from me starting out in compliance where I would lecture or I would train physicians or anybody else to say, don't take your medical record into Denny's and don't leave it (laughs) there. Right. Right. That's a bad idea. Or at the the salad bar as you're eating your salad, don't leave it there and go back to your thing. True story actually happened. Because that really happened. And another thing that really happened is when you throw the medical record in the dump without shredding it it and it flies up in the air and lands on someone's lap in a swimming pool. True story. Right. We've come from there to, to – Because all of
0: those to, – today, all that seems like common sense. Like, yeah. And we have an expectation that no one's going to do or behave in that way. And well, if you did, you're just an idiot. You deserve to Right.
1: And now we come all the way to –
0: It's on my laptop. It's on your laptop. All, it's on your phone. It's all on my phone. I walk around with it.
1: I, I actually – and so part of what compliance is is the, the laws, rules, and regs putting policies in place. And yeah. some of the policies that are outdated – or when you say, um, do not be on your cell phone, don't take pictures on your cell phone, or don't use your, don't be on your cell phone as you're walking around the hospital. Right. Well, that's an outdated policy because the reality is everybody's using their cell phone. Absolutely. Right? So we're either going to keep telling people, don't do that, don't do that. Meanwhile, right in front of me, everybody's going to be walking around with their cell phone. Right? They're, they're using it. Who's, are you going to tell a 27-year-old medical uh, student or a doctor now um, not to use their, no, they all do. Right. Not only do they use it, they take pictures with it. Yeah. Um, and there's there's patient identifiable so, right. so information my, my,
0: my patient data is on the, is
1: on that photo and that's right. great. If your phone's encrypted and wonder that's wonderful and but, no but you just you just sent it Incredible. somewhere right Yeah do I know that that's encrypted? do I know where that it is it just an, um, you just send, you basically just send it out to the world <laughs> right So how as a compliance officer am I supposed to how, how can I how can I tackle that right you know so that's that's why this is the wild wild West right now.
0: I mean, is the answer just to stop thinking about everything being so private and to think that when you're born into the world now, everybody knows everything about you?
1: I think you're getting to the issue. I think that's really what we have to come to grips with about privacy. What, how do we view privacy? What do we want to do to protect our privacy? How private are we if we're putting everything on the Internet?
0: Have we gone too far? Can we, can we go back to being private people?
1: Well, this is, uh, this, this is kind of where I'm at, actually, in my career. I'm, I'm looking at how do I bring all of my, the 23 years of compliance and yeah. the, the 20 years of tennis in, yeah. into my world of, of how do I tackle this new particular area that seems to be falling somewhat uh, or, or parallel or something related to compliance. How do you address it? And I, I think a framework needs to be involved. Not a framework to solve it, but a framework to corral it and to address it, to deal with it. Um, educating some sort of risk management type of thing where you're dealing with risk so that people are aware, hey, when, when you get that um, email that doesn't look quite right, you know, don't don't click on it. Or if you think it's funny, don't do it. But unless you train, and that's what I learned in compliance of one of the elements of compliance is training. Unless you train people... Um, is that going to solve it? No, but um, again, like compliance, are you able to be compliant with everything? No, but you're putting a framework in place to at least. What question? At, 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 you otherwise, you give up. You and I, I don't, don't think I don't asked. think that's the answer here. With think, my job, with regard or just to,
0: yeah. Well, well no, let's, this, could go, <laughs> this
1: could go far wide. Yeah, specifically <laughs> no. with. What, there again with the issue. Um, I, you know, I, in law school, I always I always wanted to know the why. I think that's I'm always wanting to know the why. And so if somebody would just say why to me, I think I could nail it by saying, because it's the right thing to do, right? It's the right thing to do. So why? Why, why are you doing this? Why, I mean, why is this in your eye? You know, you, they get all the other reasons. And you can, you can poo-poo it all you want, but at the end of the day, it is the right thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, truly, I mean, to, to be compliant, it's a good thing. And, um, I've been with other people that got it and they always called it, they preached it as the good news of compliance, not the bad news, you know? And, and I think, uh, too many not so good compliance officers walk in with a club and they say no, and they're angry and they're, and I got Um, I've never been that route. My route is even when the person says, are you going to be, are you going to be able to work with us? I know what they meant, but I also know what I meant. And what I meant was, of course, I'm always trying to build bridges I'm not here to you know put up a, a wall. I'm, I'm, I'm a bridge maker.
0: Paul Flanagan, thank you so much. For thank you,
1: thank you. You were great. I enjoy I enjoyed this very much more than I even realized. The Ten Thousand Hour podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.